All right, if you're praying with me. Dear Father God, we praise you and we thank you for blessing us with this day, this time to come together as your church and to worship you, Lord. Lord, thank you for revealing yourself to us in so many ways. Thank you for giving us your word in the Bible. Uh, And Lord, thank you for blessing us occasionally with... uh, uh, with echoes of your truth through, through, uh, through writers, through artists. Uh, Lord, let us uh, see your truth today. In Christ's name, amen. I am thy father's spirit, doomed for a certain term to walk the night, and for the day confined to fast and fires till the foul crimes then in my days of nature are burnt and purged away. But that I am forbid to tell the secrets of my prison house, I could a tale unfold whose lightest word would harrow up thy soul, freeze thy young blood, make thine two eyes like stars start from their spheres, thy knotted and combined locks to part, and each particular hair to stand on end like quills upon the fretful porcupine. But this eternal blazon cannot be to ears of flesh and blood. List, list, O oh, list, if ever thou didst thy dear father love. Revenge is foul and most unnatural murder. This scene from Hamlet, the ghost of Hamlet's father appears to him and, and seems to say something that in, in uh, the context, in their uh, late 16th century context, uh, is, is a bit theologically jarring for the time. Hamlet's father clearly is in purgatory. <laughs> Not quite the uh, post-Reformation <laughs> Anglican context. But the theater was a place where, where things did not obey the social rules of the time or the theological rules of the time. William Shakespeare was known to constantly intermingle his uh, mother's Catholicism, uh, uh, the Protestant context that he was very much part of. In fact, if you read Shakespeare's plays, he always quotes what's called the Geneva Bible. The Geneva Bible was the Bible that was written by Protestant exiles in, in uh, Geneva, Switzerland, uh, with all of the Reformation movement going on there under John Calvin uh, before, uh, before uh, uh, Protestantism was legal in 
in England and during the time where it became illegal again under Mary. Uh, and he also blended in many, many times uh, uh, Roman and other pagan ideas. Uh, you see this most uh, amongst, amongst the, uh, the fairies of Midsummer Night's Dream. The stage had moved, since we last talked about theater, had moved from the public square into actual theaters. This is a reconstruction of, the, of Shakespeare's Globe. Now, Shakespeare's Globe, um, the original burned down. <laughs> uh, this was rebuilt about... Uh, 25 years ago, a couple of blocks from where the original was constructed. But theater was not as we imagine it today. I'm, I'm sure if any of you had, have uh, gone to the tour of a Broadway production or actually gone to Broadway or the West End, you know the prices that you pay to see those shows. It is... Uh, it's uh, quite intimidating. <laughs> um, uh, it, it is something that, and, and typically when you go, you get dressed up. You, uh, you know, uh, guys, you, you at least wear a nice blazer, hopefully. Uh, uh, You're making uh, us stretch pretty far back into our memory. <laughs> <laughs> We, we remember those days long, long ago, before last year, <laughs> when we could go to the theater. Now, the, cl the closest thing we can get to the way Shakespeare's theater was you know, today is our wonderful, wonderful, wonderful Shakespeare in the Park here in Louisville, where, where it is, you know, it is open for the common people and you know yet you, you buy your food you buy your drink uh you sit there and it's uh out in the open air and it's a good time and this is more at the heart of how one would have seen shakespeare's plays originally uh it was it was not a high class affair if anything it was a rowdy affair so much so that uh that the uh, the Puritan movement within the Church of England really opposed going to the theater. It, uh, it was regarded as crass and vulgar, uh, and, and, uh, and this tension, this, uh, uh, this animosity uh, grew into, you know, in later in later years, especially during the Victorian era, many of Shakespeare's rowdier or more violent or more explicit plays just not being performed. You would not have seen Titus Andronicus for most of the uh, most of the nineteenth century. That's by far his bloodiest play, and so much stuff in it. I saw a production by Kentucky Shakespeare um, uh, 
uh, I guess it was three or four years ago now. It was, it was during October. It was a paid production, uh, and, and uh, a severed ear landed at my foot. <laughs> it was a fantastic experience. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so going into theater uh, with this in mind, there is uh, there's this tension between, on one hand, uh, the theater and the, pro- the, uh, the Puritans. Uh, you always have a little bit of a tension with the, uh, with the monarch at the time. It might have been Elizabeth at this uh, time. Not necessarily, but, but Shakespeare and many of his contemporaries always through their art, just like they were, uh, just like they could, by artistic license, <laughs> uh, blend in theologies that might not be predominant at the time, also could blend in little social critiques and critiques of the monarchy that otherwise would have been very taboo and, and possibly uh, life-threatening. But, but drama is always something that has existed. We talked back when we were in the Middle Ages with art about how, uh, how even in church services uh, in the Middle Ages, much like we did on Palm Sunday, it became a very participatory drama when the scriptures were sometimes read, especially the passion narrative. Uh, and how eventually this led to the street performances of biblical narratives. But drama has always existed. It is one of the many literary genres that we find in the Bible. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure you're thinking, where, where is drama in the Bible? A uh, couple of places. Now, of course, there are, you know, always textual debates going on about where each genre fits where in the Bible and what overlaps but, but uh, the, the literature of the Bible is something that even, even back when I, when I was an, an English major in college, the literature of the Bible was something that fascinated me and, uh, and particularly so when, when I heard it mentioned that Job, Job of all things, Followed the basic structure of a play. Think about it, especially a classical play. Think, think, you know, back in Greek times and before Greek times. You start out with a prologue, a prologue happening in the heavens. Even you, you get a little bit of these asides in Shakespeare's *Midsummer Night's Dream*, where where you see these. <laughs> 
the fairy figures, you know, talking amongst themselves how they are going to play in the circumstances of normal human beings. But, uh, but here in Job, you have the prologue where it's God and Satan uh, talking, talking about Job, you know, how he's an up, upright man. Well, why is he upright? You've never really challenged him, you know, all these things. And then you get into the narrative proper. And what is it? It's mostly dialogue. It's, it's three cycles of dialogue between Job and his friends. And then after that, you have the famous, especially in, uh, in uh, classical times, the deus ex machina, the... Uh, uh, God in the machine, the uh, uh, God, God steps in to the scene and cleans everything up. He, he provides an answer, not the one Job is looking for. The answer is me. Uh, uh, God is the only answer. Uh, but, but God steps into the scene teaches and makes everything right where where we have the final scene everything is restored thus it's a comedy (laughs) Uh, everything comes out better for job than when he started another time that drama is somewhat used though it's not the very very cleanly laid out format that Job is, is we see the, the interactions uh, uh, of uh, the Song of Solomon. It's, again, it's not a clearly laid out play. It is still, first and foremost, love poetry. Uh, you, uh, one would even call it erotic poetry. But, uh, but it still has the back and forth uh, but between the man and the woman, as well as a chorus that is commenting on this love scenario. But drama is just one of many forms that we see in the Bible and that we still see today. We see, of course, history. We have all the history books. We have the wisdom literature like Proverbs that is, that is made to give us uh, the, the good wisdom to think about. Uh, we have what would be considered creation myth with, uh, with, with Genesis, not, not to say myth as false, but to have it in its original meaning the story of how something came to be and telling us in a heightened way filled with poetry. Uh, you notice when, when uh, it, the, the beginning of Genesis has constant repetition throughout it. It's very poetic in, in that form. Also, when, when God rebukes the serpent, rebukes Adam and Eve and and pronounces the curse upon them, suddenly it's, it's being written in poetry again. 
The Bible is absolutely filled with various genres encompassing the breadth of human experience and the artistic output of that time. In, uh, uh, there is a book of essays uh, by um, uh, Leland Reichen and uh, Trimper Longman. And one of the essays within is by uh, Frederick Beekner. Frederick Beekner was a, he's still alive. Uh, <laughs> he's a Presbyterian pastor, as well as a novelist. Uh, his, uh, a couple of his no- novels are really great. Um, but he writes, It was by speaking his creative word into the primordial darkness that God on the first day brought forth light. And it is by speaking and listening to each other that out of our separate mysteries is brought forth the truth of who we are. They speak the huge gathering of people who crowd the pages of the Bible. They listen. They, they emerge if we in turn listen to them, not as allegorical embodiments of goodness and badness, but as flesh and blood men and women who no less ambiguously than the rest of us are good one day, bad the next, and occasionally both at once. Poor Peter. Uh, Whatever else they may be, they are real human beings. In other words, and it is not the world of the Sunday school tract that they move through, but the Dostoevskian world of darkness and light commingled, where suffering is sometimes redemptive and sometimes turns the heart to stone. It is a world where, although God is sometimes to be known through his life-giving presence, there are other times when he is known only by his appalling absence. The Bible is a compilation of stories of what happened to these human beings in such a world. And the stories are not only as different from one another as the people they are about, but told in almost as many different ways. Now, of the many... uh, of the many genres that, that we hit in the Bible, of these many ways that, that we hear the, uh, the people of God under his inspiration uh, writing about him. Uh, again, it's drama, uh, it's poetry, it's myth, it's history, apocalypse, now, apocalypse, we think apocalypse now, end of the world. Yeah. Apocalypse is typically speaking of future things. It's also speaking of present things. Uh, and even within these, these bigger forms, the histories, the apocalypse, uh, there, there are many different subgenres. There's the hero story the saga. 
uh, there is even horror. Again, we think, wait, there is horror in the Bible? I would say the Bible is very much in, in many ways because of our circumstance, a horror story. Now, uh, uh, there are times, though, where, where the horror of the Bible starts to actually call to mind the horror literature that, that we will see even into the great horror novels of the 19th century. I'll beg your indulgence because I spent a lot of time of the, on those in college. <laughs> oh, sorry. I forgot to talk about put the Job thing up when I was talking about Job. Of course, everyone remembers the story in, uh, in 1 Samuel when, when Saul, in his desperation, goes to a witch or a medium at Endor to, to call up the spirit of, of the prophet Samuel from the dead. And it is a chilling moment uh, in, in the scripture where, where Samuel presumably does come forth and is like, why, uh, why have you disturbed me from my slumber? And, and prophesies that, uh, that Saul is about to meet his end. Uh, and then later, the prophetic books are especially good for horror. <laughs> and Isaiah, I read this passage in Isaiah, and it's talking about the... Uh, the destruction of Edom that is, that is coming, that, that Edom is going to meet its end. And the language, the poetic language keeps building and building about how, how destroyed uh, Edom is going to be. Uh, and, and God says, they shall name it no kingdom there, and all of its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches. Wildcats will meet with hyenas. Goat demons shall call to each other. There too Lilith shall repose and find a place to rest. Now, I will... Uh, you know, this, this is a situation where you read it and you think, oh, the uh, Edgar Allan Poe could not, could not describe a, a, uh, a uh, I guess, haunted, for lack of a better word, a cursed location better than, uh, better than Isaiah could at this moment. It's overgrown with with thorns, nettles, brambles. Uh, it, it's being overrun by wild animals. These are not the, 
the, uh, the easiest to get along with wild animals either. These are the ones you avoid, even the ostriches. <laughs> if, if this were set in England or America, you would, you'd hear of wolves and snakes or something, uh, bobcats instead of uh, ostriches and hyenas. But this is, this is where it is. <laughs> Uh, and then it even builds to goat demons and Lilith. Lilith was, uh, was a legendary demon uh, from, from the Assyrian and Babylonian cultures that they had interacted with. This is, this is hyperbolic language, and yet it is getting across the fact that this, this is a truly desolate situation. But the ultimate horror uh, in the Bible is, is the one we have caused, the one we have produced. It is, the, it is the answer to all of the horror that we see in the Bible and in ourselves. It is the horror of the cross that is also the glory of the cross. Nowhere do we see such pain and agony being inflicted on a person as we do in the Good Friday narrative. And yet, it is that very horror that, that, uh, that is our salvation because it shows that God overcomes our horror. He overcomes our brokenness, the brokenness of the world, the kingdom of Satan, and is the better end to any horror story we, we could produce. The Bible is, in its overarching narrative, a comedy, a tragedy, and a fairy tale in, in their truest forms. I'll go back to Beekner again. This is, uh, this is from his book, Tell the Truth. He says, the gospel is bad news before it is good news. And we know this to be true. Uh, it is the news that man is a sinner, to use the old word, that he is evil in the imagination of his heart, that when he looks in the mirror, all in a lather, what he sees is at least eight parts chicken, phony, slob. This is the tragedy. But it is also the news that he is loved anyway, cherished, forgiven, Bleeding to be sure, but also bled for. This is the comedy. And yet, so what? So what if even in his sin, the slob is loved and forgiven when the very mark and substance of his sin and all his slobbery is that he keeps turning down the love and forgiveness because he either doesn't believe them or doesn't want them, or just doesn't care. 
and answer the news of the gospel is, the, is that extraordinary things happen to him. Just as in fairy tales, extraordinary things happen. Shakespeare's King Lear goes berserk on the heath, but comes out of it for a few brief hours, every inch a king. Zacchaeus climbs up a sycamore tree, a crook, and comes down a saint. Paul sets out a hatchet man for the Pharisees and comes back a fool for Christ. It is impossible for anybody to leave behind the darkness of the world he carries on his back like a snail. But for God, all things are possible. That is the fairy tale. All together, they are the truth. Now, switch gears for a moment. So Christianity has permeated literature since since the time when... when, uh, Christianity became the dominant religion of the world, uh, or at least the Roman Empire. And we see this throughout the centuries, especially, uh, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see it in lots of medieval works, definitely, uh, but, but we really begin to see it during the, the end of the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of the Renaissance where, where people become more literate. You know, when, when, when the common language of writing was, was Latin and the common people, one, they couldn't read, two, they didn't speak Latin, the literature did not, uh, did not uh, become as abundant. Uh, though you do see Christian references even in, in medieval works like Beowulf. But as we come into the 14, 15, 1600s, the abundance of Christian literature uh, is great. We... Uh, uh, and a lot of that is making Christian illusions. Dante Alighieri's uh, The Divine Comedy obviously tells the story of Dante's imagined journey into hell, and then from hell into purgatory, and then from purgatory into paradise, even though most of the time nowadays, at least if, if, uh, if you're in a basic literature, literature class, you're only studying the hell part. But he uses that imagery, that, that Catholic Christian imagery. Again, this is 1400. Uh, uh, to, to make a satire of the world, especially the political world that he's living in at the time. A few, about a century after Dante, uh, of course Dante 
uh, was writing in, in, uh, in the Italian, which, again, is the common language. Writing, writing in English is John Milton, who, uh, who composes Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost does something interesting. We still feel the effects of Paradise Lost today because of how popular it made the, the myth of, of Satan's fall from heaven, that of Satan and the other fallen angels, stuff that we really do not find at least very explicitly in the Bible. Uh, it, it takes a few passages, but then expands upon it, Use, using other lore that had by that time uh, grown. But then it does something very interesting. It creates uh, something that, that, that we call the sympathetic villain. Satan is clearly the lead character of the piece, and not only that, we feel for him. Uh, Milton, for better or for worse, may be worse in the outcome, but, but, but it's very pleasurable to read. But he makes, uh, he makes the Satan character in, incredibly understandable, incredibly complex. He does not give the same uh, sympathy all the time to Adam and Eve in that story. And finally, and I don't have artwork from it up here because I've never really seen really good artwork for it, uh, is, is on the opposite end of the scale. We have uh, about, about 10 years after Paradise Lost, we have John Bunyan, the Puritan, writing The Pilgrim's Progress. The Pilgrim's Progress is very... I think it's a bit on the nose. It's an intended allegory of the Christian's journey to faith. Uh, and, and the lead character, uh, named Christian, <laughs> is, is on his journey to, towards the celestial city. Uh, avoid, avoiding being thwarted by people like Mr. Worldly Wise Man along the way. But you don't have to have an on-the-nose an on allegory like that for, for Christianity or for the, the elements of our faith in general to be reflected in the stories that we read. We, there are, there are stories that we repeat over time, even, even sometimes bef, uh, in, in, the, in the myths and legends before, uh, before Christ came to us. Uh, themes of redemption, of eternal life, of a good king coming to rescue his people, uh, of, of an undesirable who is yet 
redeemed by love, the classic Beauty and the Beast story. All of these, all of these things are constant themes throughout literature, and they, and they, they show us what the inner desires of our hearts really are. We, we know we are a broken people. We know that we are individually broken, beyond repair. And, we know, and thus, we know that someone, some, someone beyond us, uh, someone who is pure, must come and rescue us, uh, must redeem us. This is why the story of Beauty and the Beast, uh, the Phantom of the Opera, so, so many retellings of that story pull on our hearts. Uh, we, we yearn for a good king to set up his peaceful kingdom, uh, to, to reign with, with the authority that, that puts all things to rest. That's, that's why we yearn for a King Arthur. Uh, that's, that's why we yearn for... for uh, for Aragorn to be installed on his throne in Gondor. These, these, are, these are things that somewhere, somewhere deep within us we know we need, we know should be true. And they find their fulfillment somewhere. And they find their fulfillment in Christ. Christ is the one who we always knew we needed. And then he came, and he's coming back. Now, moving from, moving a little bit forward, and this will carry us into where we will be going with art Next time. You thought I'd just abandoned visual art, didn't you? <laughs> We've only gotten to 1900. But, but we needed to catch up with where the world has been moving. In the 17th and the 18th centuries, we had the Enlightenment. We had, we had science uh, booming. We had philosophy changing. And this slowly changes literature. So the 19th century, in, in literature, we have three big movements that are at different places. Some, some would call the last movement uh, the, the third movement part of the second movement, but I disagree. Uh, you, have, you have romanticism happening. Now, romanticism embraces the supernatural. It embraces the, uh, the interaction of the divine, the spiritual, sometimes the demonic in the world. And a characteristic of this is that when a scene is set by an author, the entire scene feels, feels like uh, the circumstances going on if if you're going into a creepy place, you are going to have those things like Isaiah described. You are going to have a cloudy day or, or a dark, rainy night. You're going to have uh, 
uh, weeds growing up. If, if it is a love story, it is going to be a, a bright, shiny day. The flowers are going to be blooming. It's going to be so, so immersively that story. And then you have, and so that's romanticism. It's, it's a romantic view of the world. Then there's real, uh, and examples of that would be uh, uh, numerous writers. Nathaniel Hawthorne, uh, from Nathaniel Hawthorne to Edgar Allan Poe and Bram Stoker. Then you have realism. Realism is is painting a very realistic view of of our surroundings, of the world, of circumstances. God still probably exists. God, providence, the spiritual world, it does exist, but it's not regularly interacting with the world in the way it is during, in the romantic uh, writers. It is, it is in the background then there is naturalism. Uh, some, some examples of realism. My favorite would be Mark Twain. I've read so much Mark Twain in my life, it's, it's absurd. Uh, Upton Sinclair. Other, other writers who really just capture the society that they're living in. Then there is naturalism. Naturalism. Jack London and so many other writers. Uh, who, if, if God exists, he is distant. He is not involved with what goes on. It is naturalism in many ways captures the essence of Darwinism in writing. Uh, uh, survival of the fittest. The lead character can die. You don't really see that in in most of the other circumstances, in most of the other forms of literature, you are getting uh, uh, you are getting into an area where there there probably is no meaning to any of this. Circumstances are what they are, and here's how the story goes. And so we move. Uh, from, from those competing mindsets into, into the 20th century, we see the, con- the continuation of all of those in our modern-day writers. If anything, the, the Romanticism made a comeback through fantasy literature. Um, the... Uh, uh, realism, just like realism in art that we've already talked about, is perpetual. We will always have it, I think. Uh, and and naturalism, naturalism, we will we will see how that goes. But the but the uh, the the brutality uh, uh, of of the survival of the fittest aspect. I think we're honestly seeing that more and more through stories and and through films. And we're going to see how that goes further. But but then 
in our next class, uh, next, next week, we will tie in the artistic aspect, how art has changed and is changing, and, and what was always part of art that now we're not sure if it even meets the definition of art. So, uh, and gosh, that's our time. Uh, all right, thank you all very much.